All right. Let's open our Bibles uh, this evening to Second uh, Chronicles chapter 13. You recall the last time we got together, which was a couple weeks ago. I was uh, at a pastor's retreat last Thursday. And, um, but the time before that, we were in chapter 12 of Second Chronicles, and we're, we were looking at the reign of Rehoboam. And remember, Rehoboam was the son of Solomon, and um, Rehoboam, he didn't fall, the apple didn't far, uh, fall far from the tree when it came, when it came to Rehoboam, because Solomon in his latter years, remember, uh, fell into idolatry, and he certainly did repent, and we have the book of Ecclesiastes to encourage us in that. However, uh, his son Rehoboam uh, certainly uh, went down the road not like his dad. Um, he, he basically didn't start off that well and uh, continued in that vein, unfortunately, and was an evil king. Uh, in fact, it was, he was probably the, uh, you know, his reign was the one that started off not so good and it really didn't end well either. And so um, we looked at him and um, we saw that even though his heart was um, not right with God, he didn't prepare his heart uh, to seek the Lord, the scripture says. But there was something in him that when the Shemaiah, uh, the prophet, came to him and uh, basically uh, shared with him that uh, Shishak, king of Egypt, was going to come against uh, Jerusalem. And, uh, and so... Rehoboam and his cabinet, they began to turn from their sin, began to repent. And uh, God saw that humility in the man and decided to uh, not allow Shishak to completely destroy Jerusalem, but rather he would allow some deliverance. And notice the grace of God in that. You know, when God saw a heart that was humbled, when God was going to bring judgment, the man's heart was humbled. And God can't resist a humble heart. <clears throat> and so as a result of that, he didn't allow Shishak to destroy Jerusalem, um, but allowed them to be put um, into bondage, really. Um, and so, um, so we looked at that last week, and uh, this evening we're going to be looking at Abijah, who was Rehoboam's firstborn son, or his, his, his son, and uh, he is going to become king now. Now remember, Chronicles is written uh, in a, very differently than when we were in First and Second Kings. First and Second Kings gave us a, a history of the reigns of the kings of Israel, meaning the northern ten tribes, and then Judah, which includes Judah and Benjamin and the southern two tribes. And First and Second Kings really kind of gives us an overlapping understanding of when they reigned and whether they were good or not. There was a host of things. And uh, the one thing to remember, though, is that in First Kings, every single king in the northern kingdom were evil from the very beginning to the very end until they were taken captive into Assyria in 722 B.C., and then only a handful, meaning only maybe five or six kings in the southern kingdom out of their whole uh, dynasty were only decent. The rest of them were evil as well. And that's why God allowed them to go a little farther in time. And it wasn't until around 606 B.C. that the kingdom of Judah and Benjamin uh, went into uh, exile or went into captivity under the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. And so now we're going to be looking, and Chronicles really doesn't concern itself with the northern ten kings at all, or the northern ten tribes, excuse me. It really is only focusing on the kings of Judah, and for good reason, because Judah is the line through which David came, through which Joseph, or, or I'm sorry, Jacob, when he was on his deathbed in Egypt, he prophesied that out of Judah, the scepter would not depart, and, and, and Shiloh would come from that. And a Shiloh is just another name for the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the world. That Shiloh would come from Judah, 
And certainly, we know now, as we get to this point in history, that David has already come and gone. And we also know that these Judean kings that we're looking at right now, through their lineage, we're ultimately going to see Jesus Christ, who is not only the son of David, but the father of David, right? So he's going to, and he's the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy that was given by Jacob in Genesis 49, verse 10. And so um, you can see the, why the chronicler here, and we believe it might be Ezra, is really focusing on just the priesthood and upon Judah specifically, because it all basically is about Jesus. And from the very beginning to Genesis to the very begin- ending of Revelation, it's all about Christ. And it's all about him coming through the line. It's about the plan of redemption that God has put in motion. And we are in the midst of it right now. And in fact, uh, I I would assume that every one of us here uh, this evening is saved, born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if that is the case, then guess what? We are in this program, this uh, plan of redemption. And God has already touched your life and my life. And here we are in the midst of history. And what a thrill it is, isn't it? To be looking around, even as we look around the world uh, right now, it, it seems like it's coming apart at the seams. But from God's perspective, it's all coming into his plan. It looks to us like it's fallen apart. And it is because we're seeing the unraveling of the, the nature and, and, the, and the kingdoms of man. And, and believe me, it's not yet finished. It's going to get much, much worse before Jesus returns, like in Daniel, speaking of Christ as this rock formed without hands, he's going to come from heaven in his second coming. And when he comes, he's going to smash all those world kingdoms to smithereens, into small pieces. And so that is what we know to be true. And that's what we're seeing right now is the unraveling, uh, um, God allowing man to, to do his thing and to to try to rule and reign over himself. And he's proved time and time again that he cannot rule over himself, not for very long, because uh, many times things start out well, but quickly it goes south. And this is not only true of the Gentiles, it's true of the Jews. And we're seeing it in action here, even through the line of Judah, who, uh, from God's perspective, would be the, the, the tribe that he would exalt because out of that tribe would come the Jewish Messiah. Not only the Jewish Messiah, but the Savior of the whole world. Is there anybody that you know of that has taken the, his, the sin of every human being from the beginning of time to the very last breath of the person who will come on the earth in the, in the future? Is there anyone else who has died for that person's sin? Do you know that no one's really claimed to and had the validity? I mean, there was no truth behind what they say, but Christ, only Jesus, is able to make that claim. And because he died for us and then rose again on the third day, proving that his blood was efficacious to the saving of our souls. And when he rose again, it was God's way, stamp of approval, saying, I approve of this message. Because the message of the gospel is Christ crucified and resurrected. And you and I are the beneficiaries of that grace. Amen? So now we're going to, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 13. Again, it says, In the 18th year, and, and again, pardon my voice. Uh, I know I sound like Kermit the Frog, and I'm trying really hard to, um, <clears throat> and I might take extra drinks of water, but... Uh, It says that in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, uh, Abijah became king over Judah. Now, when we look at this, uh, when we look at the reigns of the different kings over the the kingdom when it was united and that of Judah, um, we can notice that Saul um, we can see these dates here. Uh, Saul reigned for 40 years. David reigned for 40 years. Solomon reigned for 40 years. Rehoboam, I believe it was 17 or 18 years. And then Abijah, who we're going to be looking at tonight, and Asa. And so notice in, in verse 1 there when it says that in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, again, Jeroboam is the king of, of what, what, what kingdom, the northern or the south, southern kingdom? 
the northern kingdom. That's right. And so in the 18th year of his reign is when um, Abijah became king over Judah. Okay, so we know the dates of King Jeroboam. He reigned from 931 to 10, or 910. So the 18th year of his reign, if we just do the math, it'd be 913 BC, which is when Abijah or Abijam began to reign over Judah. And it says that he reigned for three years, so from 913 until 911 BC. His name is interesting, it means Jehovah is my father. And notice in verse 2, he reigned three years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was uh, Micaiah, or uh, there's another spelling or variant of that, and it's uh, Maica. In Second Chronicles 11, verse 20, it gives a, a, a different spelling of her name, but it's one and the same person. And she was the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah, and there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. And remember that this Abijah, again, was Rehoboam's favorite son of his 28 sons. You know, 1 Chronicles 11, verse 21, tells us that he had many sons. In fact, he had 28 sons and, 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 and daughters as well. And uh, he didn't, uh, just like his father before him, Rehoboam, he had many wives, which God had prohibited the kings to have multiple wives. And it was very customary in the Oriental cultures of that day, for in, in Gentile cultures, for there to be uh, a harem, uh, many wives to a king. But God says, not so for you. Not so for you. I've created one man and one woman, and they too shall become one flesh. How can you become one flesh with, in Solomon's case, a thousand different women? You can't. I mean, how could you even remember their names? Right? And God's plan is for peace. And, and marriage is a blessing. It's supposed to be a blessing, not a curse. And, and there is a wonderful type that we see in biblical, true biblical marriage. When a husband and a wife are united and they love each other as they love Christ first and foremost. And Paul would tell us later on in his epistle that these things, uh, the way God had ordained marriage from the, be from the beginning, back in the, in the Garden of Eden, he designed it that way, and, and it was to show us this relationship that ultimately we will have with Christ. And we are married to him, and we are one in him. And so whenever we break outside of God's plan, we get into trouble very quickly. And that's what we see happening to all these men. It certainly happened to Solomon, an unfortunate tale of a man who was gifted with great wisdom. But he didn't listen to God's word. There came a point when Solomon wanted to test the waters. And maybe, maybe in doing so, he proved the things that God had said. And ultimately, the egg was on his face and not on God's face. It would have been much better for Solomon to have obeyed God and continued to be a stellar example. But instead, he had other thoughts. And he thought, well, I wonder what it's like to take a, wild, a walk on the wild side. I wonder what it's like to go to the bars and hang out with women, strange women. And he found out. And unfortunately, our culture is filled with men and women who are doing the same thing, not listening to God. Can I encourage you to listen to God? And the reason being is because he, he's, not, he, he's not worried about you know, ruining your fun. Believe me, the Bible is honest. It says sin is pleasurable for a season. But then, like a viper, it bites. And there is a a consequence on the other side of that pleasure that you thought you were having. And there's always a price tag involved, and it's never good. It's never easy, and it's one that you never signed up for. It's the one that you never wanted. And all of these men, and, and this is what I love that, about the honesty of the Bible, is that God makes sure that he doesn't just give us the truth, um, about the good things. He tells us the truth about the dark things too. He, he gives us the whole thing so that we will see and understand that what he said to Paul in Romans 6.23, what's the scripture? 
For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? The wages of sin, that's what we get. The wage that we get from sinning is death. But then the gift of God, something that is not earned but rather given, is eternal life. What would you choose? The logical choice is to choose Christ. That's right, to choose life. And that's what the Lord said to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 30 before they crossed over. I set before you life and death. Choose therefore life. And yet people today are choosing death and thinking that they're somehow really cool and that their, their friends are going to you know, hang out with them in jail and when they go to hell, they're going to have a big party. Hey, listen, if you think that you're going to live a, a debaucherous life and spend you know, a party with a bunch of Bud Light with your friends in, in hell, you got another thing coming because you don't know anything. You seriously are, you don't know anything. If God was to give each one of us even a second glimpse of what hell is really like, I believe we would all fall on our face and quit our jobs and serve him with abandonment. One second in hell. And think, if you reject Christ, you'll spend that eternity. It won't be one second. And you will have chosen that location because of your rejection. And this man, Rehoboam and Abijah, they're not starting off on good feet. They're not starting off on a good footing. And what a shame, you know, that uh, these tribes would be at odds with each other. Now, Abijah and Jeroboam, they were, you know, they would be um, at odds with one another. From this point onward, actually, in the enemy of our souls, Satan, he did a good job at doing what he does best, dividing and conquering. And that's what Satan does. He divides and he conquers. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in the printed page before our eyes. Satan has divided the nation, and now he's putting them against each other. It's a very common strategy for military people. And Satan has been around a long time, and he, is, he understands warfare he understands spiritual warfare, and he doesn't need to do something new because the old tricks, the old bag of tricks, they work so well. There's no need to bring out any other tricks. When these tried and tr tricks, they work really well. But he's dividing them and conquering them, and he's very patient in doing so. In our country right now, just to put it into perspective here, our country right now is being divided. And it's being conquered by many enemies. You're not going to like this, but I'm going to tell you. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, the LGBTQ agenda has infiltrated every fabric of our culture while we were sleeping. And enemies, yes, even within our own government, Democrats and Republicans, they're no longer doing what their constituents are asking them to do. Now they're paying attention to what they can get uh, from lobbyists and from special interest groups, backroom uh, back deals, adhering to Marxist ideologies and forsaking the Constitution of the United States. That's what's happening right now as we sit here tonight. It's been happening for a long time, but let me say in the last three years, it's been on nitro, nitro, uh, nitrous oxide. It's going, folks, and that's what's happening. But just like Israel at this time, we too as a nation are being divided and we're being conquered, and the powers that be are turning their heads and allowing it, defying the oaths that they have taken. And unless God intervenes, Unless God intervenes in our country and he has mercy on us, our country will continue to reap what we have sown. So the impetus is on us to be, pray to be praying. Are you praying? I'm not here to beat anybody up tonight. I'm not. But I want to challenge you because we're seeing in print here history. And they ignored God. And the people began doing their own thing. And America is no different. Right now, America is not doing well. Even the church, and I'm not saying us specifically, 
but the church on a grand scale, on a, on a, on a bigger, over our country, the church is not in a good place. We're more focused on appeasing sinful uh, things rather than standing up for the truth of the word of God and standing on it and saying, this is what the Lord says. And now you've got pastors who are men that are wearing women's clothes and the guy's married to another man, but he looks like a woman. I mean, it's total confusion. And this is happening right in our back door. I mean, it's, it's all right going on right before our eyes. We deserve what Israel has got. And America, church in America, we had better wake up. We are about to get swallowed by the dragon. And it's time that we, the church, wake up. God doesn't expect the people that don't know him to wake up. But we need to wake up and get serious in our prayer life. Again, I know this is a little pointed. And part of it's me trying to get my my voice to work here, okay? So forgive me for that. But it's true. Verse 3, it says, Abijah set the battle in order with an army of valiant warriors, 400,000 choice men. Jeroboam also drew up in a battle formation against him with 800,000 choice men and mighty, mighty men of valor. So do you see the odds here? 400,000 men from Judah in the south, 800,000 men from Israel in the north. And you know, the Lord never seems to be upset by overwhelming odds. We get upset by it. But God can do things that we could never imagine. We've seen it time and time again throughout the Holy Writ, really, right? We've seen it throughout the Bible. God, he doesn't need a big army. He can take one man and face off against 450 prophets on a mountain, and he did it. He can take one man to raise a staff and uh, for a couple million people uh, to cross over the Red Sea, and for that man to take that rod of God and allow the waters to go in and drown Pharaoh and his armies. God can do much with very little. So God is not upset that there's only 400,000 in Judah and 800,000 on, on the, of their brothers in the north. Think of Gideon. Remember Gideon in Judges chapter 7? He had an army of 32,000 men and God dwindled them down to 300 men. Remember the book of Judges? There was this, uh, this moral pattern in the time of Judges, and it's uh, very much like, um, there's a lot of similarities with the United States. But the moral pattern in the time of Judges was this. The children of Israel, they fall into idolatry. God brings chastening upon them from foreign armies or enemies. The children of Israel, then they cry out to God, which is a good thing. And then God raises up a deliverer or a judge or a savior, not the savior, but a savior, and gives victory then to Israel. And then there's a time of peace and blessing. And then that repeats over and over again. For about 400 years, that same pattern. When you look at the book of Judges, that's what it is. And so... You know, when we look at the life of Gideon, Gideon's army went from 32,000 to 300. That's less than 1% of the original size that was left to fight the Midianites and the Amalekites, who were several thousand strong. And God intervened. So God is not worried. So then Abijah, verse 4, stood on Mount Zemaraim, and this mountain is actually right to the north of the border. If you were to look at Jerusalem and you were to look at where the dividing line is from the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes, just north of the Dead Sea, there would be right over by Jericho, there'd be this, this line. And so the northern ten tribes to the north, southern two tribes to the south, well, right across the border here, into Israel was this Mount uh, Zemaraim, uh, which is in the mountains, notice, of Ephraim. 
And so Abijah stands on this mountain addressing the men of Israel. And he says, hear me, Jeroboam and all Israel. Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons by a covenant of salt? Now, when you read that, you probably like me going, covenant of salt? What's that all about? I have no idea. Actually, I do, have a, I do have an idea. I was just being facetious. In Numbers chapter 18, verse 19, it says this. It says, All the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer to the Lord I have given to you and your sons and your daughters with you as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and, um, and your sons. And so there isn't a lot that's known about this covenant of salt, but it apparently has something to do with an enduring uh, covenant, uh, something that's even everlasting or forever. And so that's really the idea here. So verse 6, Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and he rebelled against his Lord. So Abijah's rehearsing this before Jeroboam and all of the tribes, and he's standing on the mountain, so providing like a natural amphitheater for those down on the, on, uh, underneath him. He says, and then worthless rogues gathered to him, speaking of Jeroboam, and strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and inexperienced and, and could not withstand them. The idea here is that uh, advantage was taken against Rehoboam because of his age and inexperience even though the Bible tells us in 1 Kings 14.21 that it was, he was 41 years old, actually, when Rehoboam began to reign. But I love what it says in the King James. In, in the King James version of the Bible, in the same verse in the King James, it says this, and I think this makes it a little easier for us to understand why they were taking advantage of Rehoboam. It says in the new, or, I'm sorry, the King James, it says, and there, and there are gathered unto him vain men, the children of Belial, and have strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and tender-hearted, tender-hearted and could not withstand him. The idea here is that he was tender and delicate. He was timid. And think about, he grew up with no troubles, Rehoboam grew up in a household that had everything. His dad was the wisest man in the world at the time. They had all of the money. There was no kingdom like that in all the earth. He grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth, didn't he? At Christmas time, I mean, I mean, they didn't have Christmas back then, but I mean, you know, he would get all the fancy new toys. He had everything he wanted. He never saw any adversity because in Solomon's reign, remember, it was all peaceful. So he grew up in a house where plenty was all I knew and I never had any adversity. So that's why I love the King James rendering of this because it says that Rehoboam was tender hearted and literally the word means timid. He was timid and delicate. So he really wasn't the kind of guy to, you know, uh, pull out a sword on his Harley Davidson and go after somebody. He was more like the guy to hide under, you know, hide behind mother, perhaps. And then so Abijah continues now rebuking Jeroboam and the, the, the northern kingdom. And he says, And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hand of the sons of David, and you are a great multitude, and with you are the gold calves. Hint, hint. You've, you guys are the ones with the gold calves, which Jeroboam made for you as God's, lowercase g. Whenever there's a lowercase g, remember that it's not God. <laughs> right? lowercase. He says, have you not cast out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made for yourselves priests like the peoples of other lands, so that whoever comes to consecrate himself and a young bull and seven rams may be a priest of things that are not gods? But as for us, verse 10, the Lord is our God and we have not forsaken him. I want you to underline that phrase. Underline the phrase, but as for us, 
The Lord is our God and we have not forsaken him. Just underline that part because it's going to get better. And the priests who minister to the Lord are the sons of Aaron and the Levites attend to their duties. So now he's appealing to them on religious grounds, basically saying, no, you guys have kicked out the priests, the sons of the Levites too. Not only are you worshiped the golden calves in, in Dan and Bethel, which we know everybody knows is idolatry, but you kicked out the priests and now you got these vain fellows worshiping and ministering at these demonic altars Hey, does anybody remember what the, you know, Deuteronomy was all about? And that's what he's saying to them, trying to appeal to them. Verse 11, and they burn to the Lord every morning. Speaking of the, the good guys, the Levites. And they burn to the Lord every morning and every evening, burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. And they also set the showbread in order on the pure gold table and the lampstand of gold with its lamps to burn every morning. Now underline this phrase, for we keep the command of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Now there is truth to that, isn't there? They have, the northern ten tribe, they have forsaken him, right? And it is true that the southern two tribes, they are the Levites, they are holding true to the worship of God. But I find this interesting because of his boast of piety. Because the scripture records at least two passages that make this a lie. And I'm going to share them with you one at a time. So Abijah is saying, that's why I had you underline those two, those two sentences. Because we're going to see now through 1 Kings chapter 14 beginning in verse 22. We're going to read this and we're going to realize that these guys weren't squeaky clean either. They're appealing to them, trying to win them back so that they could have the whole united kingdom together, which is a noble cause and a great goal, to be sure. However, none of them were squeaky clean, not even Judah. Notice what it says concerning um, uh, Rehoboam. It says, now Judah did evil. In the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy. So this is Abijah's dad. Rehoboam. So Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him, God, to jealousy. With their sins which they committed. More than all that their fathers had done. More than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places. Sacred pillars. Wooden images on every high hill. And under every green tree. These were um, idols. Wooden idols made of images of Asherah, a, a Canaanite goddess. And there were also perverted persons in the land. Yes, male prostitutes prostituting themselves to other men. And they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. So, does Rehoboam, you know, Abijah is spouting all of this piety, but when we think about his own father, what he did, I, their boast is kind of empty, even though I understand what they're trying to do. It's not a bad thing, but they weren't squeaky clean either. And what about the second passage? It's in 1 Kings 15, concerning Abijah's own reign. And what does it tell us in 1 Kings, the, the parallel passage of this Arian Chronicles that we're looking at right now. Notice in verse 3 of 1 Kings 15, it says, And he, Abijah, walked in all the sins of his father Rehoboam, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal, notice, to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem. So do you see the hypocrisy here? Again, his motivation is right, but he's um, coming off as if, he even said it, we are the ones that have not transgressed, but you have. It's like, well, you better read the newspaper, pal, because uh, these other scriptures that God has said, you know, of your father and also you, I hate to say it, but not going in the right place. So he really has no room to boast, but I don't blame him for the motivation of his heart. He's trying to unite what had been separated, and that's, a, again, a noble and worthy goal. But God is the one who separated them. Verse 12, now look, God himself is with us, 
as our head and his priests with sounding trumpets to sound the alarm against you. And, um, O children of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. Notice how Abijah now is bringing God into this equation now. Again, he's trying hard to convince them to acquiesce, perhaps for many reasons. Uh, Number one, he wants to be king over all Israel again. It's not a bad thing. Everybody uh, prior to him, except for his own father, there was a united kingdom. Saul and David and Solomon. But maybe, the, number two, he, this, by doing this, perhaps he was doing it, that they could avoid bloodshed. And that's a noble cause too. Nobody wants to kill their brothers. These guys all came from the tribe of Jacob. They all came from Jacob, excuse me. And now they're fighting against one another. Right? There's a problem with this. Do you, I don't think God is glorified in this. And thirdly, the two kingdoms could be reunited again with Jerusalem as its spiritual capital. It could happen. But I don't believe that these were necessarily bad motives again, but there are some things that he didn't get right. This division of the kingdom was God's doing because of the idolatry and the pride of Solomon and Judah and also Rehoboam. What does it tell us in 1 Kings chapter 11? Oops, I forgot to do that slide for you. I'm sorry. In 1 Kings chapter 11, what does it tell us in verse 29? It happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way. So this is before Jeroboam was king over the northern ten tribes. God had a message for him. And this is why God is the one who broke this kingdom because of idolatry and rebellion. It says, now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way and he had clothed himself with a new garment and the, and the two were alone in the field and then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces and he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments, as did his father David. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I had made him ruler, excuse me, ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. Isn't that wonderful about David? He wasn't a perfect man, but he did follow the the statutes and the commandments of God. He made a couple of really boneheaded errors that any one of us could have made, but he repented, and he was a changed man, and he never did those things again. There's a big difference. When you fall into a mud puddle and you get up and you clean yourself off and you keep going, blessed are you. But if you're the type of person to fall in the mud puddle and wallow in the mud puddle and continue like a pig to hang out in the mud puddle, you're going to have a sloppy life, pun intended. Pun intended, right? And people do that all the time. They get involved in, in drugs and sex and alcohol and everything else, and, and they, don't, they don't allow the Lord to clean up their lives. They're like the proverbial dog that returns to its vomit after they have had their, you know, their punishment and just a week later they're back to it again. Haven't learned a single thing and such were some of us. Such was me. I remember those days. But Jeroboam, notice what Jeroboam did. He takes an old playbook, an old military strategy out of the book of Joshua and he decides to pull this on Jerusalem, on Judah and Benjamin. But, but verse 13, back in our text, but Jeroboam caused an ambush to go around behind them, meaning behind Abijah and the tribe of Judah. So they were in front of Judah and the ambush was behind them. And again, uh, a very um, uh, a military strategy that we saw in Joshua chapter 8. You can read that. And, um, and Israel at that time, in Joshua, they had used that strategy under the direction of God 
and they, they surrounded the men of Ai. If you remember, as soon as they had crossed over into the promised land, they, they, they destroyed Jericho and they tried to do Ai and they got beat and God told them that there was sin in the camp. And uh, remember Achan? Uh, that, that issue was dealt with. And then finally, um, uh, God tells them, this time I want you to do something different. And God gives them, he's the commander of the army of the, the Lord of hosts, right? So when God says, and I love this, he told David the same thing. Because David, remember, there was moments when David would, God would say, David, I want you to approach the Philistines this way. And he went down and he had a great victory. And, and the very next day, the Philistines gather together and they're in battle array and they're ready to go at it again. And David himself was probably thinking, well, we'll just do this again. And God says, but it says that David inquired of the Lord. And I love that because David didn't take anything for granted. He could have just said, ah, let's just do this 2.0 thing. Let's just do this again. And God says, David, this time I want you to wait. And I want you to wait for the rushing of the wind over the mulberry trees. And at that moment, then I want you to go out. Not a moment too soon. And David simply followed orders. He was simply obedient. And what happened? Great victory. And the moral of the story is, listen to God. If he tells you to do something, he's told us, he's told us a lot, quite actually, right? So when he tells you to do something, if he tells you to not uh, be a fornicator, then why are you fornicating? If he tells you to, um, to not lie and steal and cheat and be a thief, then why are you still doing all those things? We prove to ourselves that we're really not doing those things, right? That's the cold, hard truth, right? So verse 14, so Jeroboam decides to take this old strategy out of the playbook and, uh, that God had given to the Israel and now he's thinking that he's going to use that against God's people. That's a real problem. You're going to use my idea against my own people? Try it. See what happens. And let's read on. Aren't you dying of suspense? And when Judah looked around, verse 14, to their surprise, the battle line was at both front and rear, and they cried out to the Lord. That's a really good thing to do. When you're in trouble, cry out to the Lord. Don't put your fist in the air. I thought you loved me, God. People do that. You know, do you know anybody that does that? Do you know in the, in the tribulation period that people are going to do that? Instead of bowing and humbling themselves, they're going to raise their fist to God. Not a good idea. But when I get hurt or when I'm in trouble, the first place I run to is the Lord. What's that old song we used to sing? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. He is your strong tower. He is the one who can take you, keep you. He's the one who can hide you under the covert of his wings, metaphorically speaking, because no one can touch God. No one can touch him. He's the king of the mountain. Nobody can say my God is bigger than your God because I, our God is bigger than any other God, lowercase g, thank you very much. And I can say it and be cocky about it. You know why? Because it's true. He's mighty and he is all that he says he is. And so much more that the English language has a hard time really describing the whole thing. Hallelujah, right? So Judah looked around. They cried out. They saw the ambush was in front. Now in the back, they cried out to the Lord. The priests sounded the trumpets. It's, it's bedlam. It's, it's mayhem. And then the men of Judah gave a shout. And as the men of Judah shouted, it happened that God struck Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. God did that. God did the same thing with Gideon. Remember Gideon and the Midianites and the Amalekites out in the field? That during the evening... When they were still forming the battle, they weren't even aware of this. They were probably sleeping. And God already went out into the Midianites and the Amalekites and slaughtered a huge number of them. How can you fight against God? Do you remember in the Gulf War? I, I got to bring this up because this is a fun little thing to bring it to our um, current, somewhat current, during the Gulf War, 
Do you remember when the United States and the Allies were going into Baghdad and there came a moment where there was a huge windstorm and it was a sandstorm and it was coming against the Allied forces as they were coming into Baghdad. And all of us were watching all of this unfold on television, remember? And, um, and we thought, oh, oh my gosh, this is really bad. Now even nature is working against us, right? Well, do you know what though that wind revealed? Landmines. It, it uncovered the landmines right in their path. So what seemed like a storm and the enemy's going, ah, watch this, you know. I mean, they didn't have any control over it, but I'm sure they were using it to their, you know, machismo. Look what, you know, you come against us. Well, our God is bigger than your God. And you're saying, well, your God just uh, blew away the armaments that you were going to blow us up with. So <laughs> our God is bigger than your God. Amen. Go home. <laughs> right? We can, we can say that. Because that's the truth of who he is. And I love that about God. I won't boast in myself, but I will boast in his power. Because he is exalted and we lift him up and we exalt his power. Not our power. Not my, I, have, I have nothing. I'm bankrupt. And the United States is bankrupt. In fact, I don't know if you guys knew this, newsflash. You know, Twitter feed or X feed. There's no power on earth that's a big deal to God. Have you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, what God's going to do to those missiles when they're starting to throw stuff? He's going to go, is that all you got, boys? Oh, it didn't work out so well for you, did it? You cannot fight against God. And when you're fighting against God, you are going to lose every single time. So the men of Judah gave a shout. God struck Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And again, this is awesome because even though Abijah, we know he, he wasn't starting off well either, and he was going to be an evil king. God, no doubt, did this, not for Abijah's sake so much, but for David's sake. He even said that he did it for David's sake. He preserved Judah because of the promises that he had made to David and to Solomon. He is the promise keeper. He made promises. And God knows what Abijah was up to. He knew that he was just giving him lip service. He knew that after God gave him the victory, they'd be going back to their, you know, worshiping the, you know, the phallic symbols and the, the, the Canaanite goddesses and everything. He knew they were going to do that. But because of his promise, he says, I'm going to show up now. And it's for my name's sake. And for the sake of David, my servant, who I made promises to. So God did respond to their faith at that time. And they did have a measure of faith. And they put it in God. And hallelujah for that. We don't want to take that away from them. But God did this in spite of Judah. And he did it in spite of King Abijah. And again, God is so faithful to his promise. I love what it says in 2 Timothy. It says, if we are faithless. And let me just read the whole verse. It's such a good verse. 2 Timothy chapter 2, this is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, Christ that is, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Doesn't that just give you a kick? That means that my performance, even their performance, was weak. And their boasts, I mean, their boasts in God was good, but their piety, there was no piety. Come on. We look at the verses. We looked at them already. But God saw enough there. And because of his promise that he made to David, he says, you know what? I'm doing it for him. And there's a measure of faith here that I see. That's what I love about God, that you and I can't do with one another often. God can see the, the measure of faith. I, I can't see a measure of faith. I, I might look at somebody's life, and, and if I was in a judgmental attitude, which is not a good thing anyway, but I could make a, a statement like, well, that person has no faith. And God says, no, they do. It's just not as mature, perhaps, as yours or somebody else's. But I see that faith. Didn't he do that with Ahab? 
some of the most wicked kings, God allowed some measure of deliverance because they humbled themselves. Now, for the kings who are obstinate, like Zedekiah, those who stuck their chest out and thought, you know, I don't need you, God. God says, okay, you don't need me. The last thing you're going to see before they gouge your eyes out are your 70 sons put to death. And then Nebuchadnezzar is going to take your eyes out. And you're going to die in Babylon. And that's exactly what happened to him. He didn't humble himself. Word of the wise, (laughs) humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up, right? Yes, we got to humble ourselves before the Lord. Humility is, is really important, especially in the days that we live in. You know, the, the, the world doesn't need to see a church that's full of bravado and, and um, um, self-confidence. I have no confidence. Well, I'm, I probably do, I'm sure. But I know I shouldn't have any confidence in myself. But who, I do, who do I have confidence in? It's in Jesus. And that's where our confidence really lies, right? It's where it should lie. Going on in verse 16 here, I think we're only going to be able to do this chapter tonight. Um, And notice in verse 16, And the children of Israel fled before Judah. So now the Jeroboam and his army, seeing that they got their tail whipped, they're fleeing before Judah, and God delivered them into their hand. And then Abijah and his people struck them with a great slaughter. So 500,000 choice men of Israel fell slain. Now, when you think about that, that may sound like a victory. And indeed it was, and perhaps they did deserve it, because the wages of sin is death. And they were completely, from the moment Jeroboam took over in the north, they continued to perpetuate this kind of idolatry. And so, God had his way. But think of this, 500,000 of the 800,000 in Israel were killed by the tribe of Judah by God and the tribe of Judah. That's a lot of people, folks. These are their brothers. These are the men they were supposed to be standing with. These, this is the family that should have been staying together, and now they're killing each other. It almost sounds like downtown Rochester. And in the suburbs, families divided, killing each other. Sorry if that offends any of you. I know I'm kind of rough under the edge, I guess, but... But these are the reality of things. And what a tragedy. What a horrible thing. They were all sons of Jacob. And now this. And because of the Norse idolatry, they were on the wrong road. They were on the wrong road. And the scripture is true, right? And we already looked at this. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So back in our passage here, verse 18, it says, Thus the children of Israel were subdued at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed. Because, notice this, underline this actually in your Bibles. Verse 18, underline this phrase, Because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. The children of Israel were were subdued at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed. Why? Because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. So regardless of what Abijah's motives were here, he did try to reunite the kingdom, but it wasn't going to work. God had torn them apart. God spoke to Jeroboam by the prophet Abijah. Before the kingdom was even broken, he says, this is what's going to happen. And I'm going to give you ten tribes. If you follow me and if you do according to my statutes and my commandments, I'll bless you and I'll make you, uh, uh, you know, I'll do to you what I was doing to Judah. He gave him the ability, but he didn't take it. Verse 19, And Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took cities from him, Bethel with its villages. Now Bethel and, uh, was one of those uh, villages very close to the border between Judah and uh, the northern ten tribes. Right there on the border is where all, and this makes sense, right? That's what the whole thing with Russia and Ukraine is all about, right? The Ukraine was a, a buffer really from Russia and from Eastern Europe, right? And, and so this is a buffer here. And so 
you know, if Putin gets into Ukraine, now the buffer that they had is gone. Now, I think there's a lot of other things going on, but just militarily, that's what they're thinking. Same thing is true here. They're trying to fortify these cities right along the border between north and south of these two different kingdoms so that when these things happen again, they'll be able to withstand it and actually fight back. So Abijah pursued Jeroboam, took cities from him, Bethel with its villages, Jeshanah with its villages, and Ephraim with its villages, So Jeroboam did not recover strength again in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him, and he died. Excuse me. Now, God had given to Jeroboam these opportunities to reconsider his evil ways, too. In 1 Kings 13, notice how gracious God is. It says that, behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel from by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Now, Jeroboam, was he able to burn incense? Should he be burning incense? No, he's not a Levite. He was a king. He wasn't supposed to be burning incense. Only the, the Levites, the, the sons of Aaron, were specifically to do that. So here he is in, in the very beginning of his reign, Jeroboam, that is. He's there burning incense, something he wasn't supposed to do. And then he cried out, the, 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 the man of God cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah by name. Now, Josiah hadn't been born for a few hundred years. This was back way before he was even born. And this man of God tells Jeroboam, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, speaking of this altar at Bethel, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart and the ashes on it shall be poured out. And so it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel that he stretched out his hand from the altar saying, arrest him. And then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered so that he could not pull it back to him. And think of, this is like a blooper reel. It would be amazing to watch again. You know, the man, he goes, Arrest him. Ooh. Somebody help. (laughs) Got a problem here. Bring the WD-40, you know. And then his hand, when he stretched out, he couldn't pull it back. And the altar was also split apart. And the ashes poured out from the altar. So God confirmed what was going to happen yet in the future. Right there at the moment by saying, not only am I telling you what's going to happen, I'm going to confirm it right now, that this thing's going to split in the middle and the ashes are going to fall right through it. And that's exactly what happened. And then finally, the king, Jeroboam, he had an ounce of humility in him. The king answered and said to the man of God, please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me because I can't play the guitar with an arm like that. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. Isn't that a mighty, wonderful God? God knowing that Jeroboam, it was was a temporary thing, right? Because everybody knows. God knew more than anybody, but we know even through history that Jeroboam would be the progenitor of everything evil. But this moment, when he reached out his hand and he couldn't bring it back, that was a real problem. I mean, think about how that would feel. Everywhere you walk, you know, you're kind of like this. Where are you? Over there. You know, and he's got this thing, and he, he asks the Lord to pray for him. He asked the, the prophet to pray for him. The prophet did, and God says, okay, I'll do that. I'll heal you, Jeroboam. Never forget what I've done for you. I'm not doing it because of who you are. 
doing it because I love you, but you're going in the wrong direction. Will you change your heart? So many overtures, so many overtures that God gives to the ungodly. Be encouraged by that because as a child of God, we never want to presume upon his grace ever. But you know what? If he's, he's a very gracious God, let's just leave it there. And I am very, I'm a, I'm a beneficiary of that grace of God, and so are you. And isn't it wonderful to love a God who loves you like that? Seriously. He loves you that much. He loves the people right now that are doing wicked, despicable things. He loves them. He doesn't love what they do. But every now and then, he's knocking on the door of their heart, and will they answer? And I was one of those people that the Lord had knocked on the door of my heart at different times in my life, and one of those times, I answered the door. And that was when my life was changed forever. But notice the final verse here in chapter 13, and then we'll finish up. But Abijah, notice, grew mightily. He married 14 wives and begat 22 sons and 16 daughters. I wonder where he learned all that from. Yeah, his dad and his grandfather. He learned all these things from. He learned from his father, Rehoboam, like Rehoboam learned from his father, Solomon, concerning having multiple wives, even though the Lord commanded against it. You know, there's a really great uh, passage in Deuteronomy, and, um, and, the, and we'll, we'll, we'll end here, but I, I just, I, I'm going to read this to you. It, it's one of those passages that I would put in your Bible and read it often, because you're going to find, you're gonna be, it's like a refrain in a, in a, in a, in a hymn. You know, as you, you know, if you think of the, uh, the, the history of Israel like a hymn, you know, different stanzas of a hymn, what you find is this refrain coming back again again and again. Because it's a warning. It's a warning. So it's like, they're doing this, they're doing this, they're doing this. Here comes the refrain. They're doing this, they're doing this. Here comes the refrain. Let me just read it to you really quick because these were the five commandments that before the children of Israel even came into the promised land, God said these five things, at least, I only found five, there may be more, but I think there's only five here. If you find a six, let me know. But let me read it to you. So again, before they even get into the land, around 1406 B.C. specifically was when this was given to them, Israel before they crossed over into the promised land. God says to them, verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17, he says, when you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you and you possess it and you dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall... Also, not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, for the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. And also, number three, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Did that happen to Solomon? We know that it did. Was it a wise choice to have multiple wives? Then why did his son and his grandson continue in that that vein doesn't make sense. Lest his heart turn away. And fourthly, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. And I love this. He's going to write himself his own Bible. He shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest, the Levites, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Isn't that wonderful? That you know, This is the one thing that he says, now when he comes in the kingdom, I also want him to take the, the book of the, of the priests, and he's going to write his own copy. And he's going to have it with him. He's going to read it. He's going to study it. 
And he's going to learn to give commandments and, and, and the, his whole life, his kingdom, his personal life, the, the life of the, of the nation is going to be centered and focused around this. And see, you and I, we have this too, don't we? Each of us have a Bible. Some of us have multiple sets of Bibles. And you know, I'd encourage you <clears throat> to read it. To read it not with the intention of telling somebody else about what they're doing wrong, but to read it and say, Lord, you put this in front of me so that I would read it and that it would get in and, 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 and change my heart, my life. And as your life has changed, other people are going to ask questions. And now you've got something to talk about. Right? So isn't the word of God wonderful? If you agree with me that the word of God is wonderful, why don't we stand up? Lord, we thank you for these passages that we read, Lord. They are challenging, and Lord, they are. They hit us right where we live. And Father, I pray for all of us tonight, myself included, Jesus, that you would burn the scripture right on to the tables of our heart, God, and that we would truly get serious with you, Father. We live in a in a country, a world that has just abandoned you with, and, and have just gone the way, literally, of Cain. Gone the way of idolatry and everything impure. And yet, God, you love, and you love us. Lord, would you sustain us in this generation, in this world, and help us to be lights for you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Write it on the tables of our hearts too, Lord. Lord, I love the... Um, what David wrote in the Psalms. He goes, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee, O Lord. And Lord, I pray that that would be true of each of us, Lord. So thank you for this time. Thank you for my brothers and my sisters. Lord, get us home safely and keep us all healthy. Father, we love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.